to the book of Luke chapter number 10 this evening. Luke chapter number 10. And uh, that's where we were at this morning was in Luke chapter number 10. We talked about the Samaritan Savior. We talked about the parable or the teaching of the Good Samaritan on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We saw how that in many ways that pictured the Son of God for us. And uh, tonight I want us to take a little bit different look at it. You know, the Word of God, and I said this this morning, but for the benefit of those that are joining us tonight, I'll say that the Word of God is, is perfect. It's inspired. And the King James Bible that you have sitting in front of you is without flaw and without error. It is absolute or it is obsolete, one of the two. Amen? We believe it's absolute around here. We believe it is absolutely perfect that the inspiration of the Word of God has been perfectly and flawlessly preserved. And uh, praise the Lord for it. The Bible teaches that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The Word of God means what it means. Whether that hair lips, me, you, or the devil, or anybody else, the Word of God means what it means. But we find that though there is one interpretation, there are various applications that can be made of the Word of God. Things it can mean in our life in a particular way. This morning, we talked about how that the interpretation... By the way, we adhere to the literal interpretation of the Word of God. Uh, we believe that Christ literally spoke these words. We believe He was literally the Son of God, literally sinless, literally died in our place on Calvary uh, to pay for your sins and for mine, that He was literally buried, that He literally rose again the third day in power and in glory that He ascended on high literally, and that He's literally coming back for His bride. Well, we believe this. We believe it is a literal passage. However, we also understand that it is a metaphor as well. And by the way, I don't mean an allegory. I mean a metaphor. You say, well, what do you mean? An allegory uh, is a metaphor that is trying to propose itself as truth. And there's a difference. Uh, we believe that this was a parable teaching of the Good Samaritan. We don't necessarily believe that there was an actual Samaritan or an actual traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. There was probably many throughout the years, but uh, we don't necessarily believe that there was a literal one that was being referenced here. Though we understand the words of Jesus Christ are literal, and this is literal truth, uh, we understand that He was teaching this by way of parable or metaphor. So that is the interpretation of this Scripture. But we saw an application this morning whereby this good Samaritan pictured for us the Son of God. And I'll just give you a few thoughts from this morning. I won't re-preach the message. But we saw that that sojourner was easily a picture of the sinner on the road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, Jericho is a doomed place. God put a curse upon it. And the sinner, no matter how, what road he may walk down, unless he knows Christ as his Savior, uh, the destination that he's headed to is just the same. He may walk a moral road. He may walk a religious road. Uh, he may walk a charitable road. He may walk a seemingly philosophically enlightened road. But until he knows the Son of God, his destination is just as cursed and as damned and as doomed as the city of Jericho was. Uh, we saw that it was a doomed road. It was a dangerous road laden with uh, various thieves and bandits. We saw uh, the ruin that he experienced on that road, how that he was taken and he was uh, assaulted and accosted and abused and abandoned. Uh, we saw how that he was left half dead. And what a beautiful picture of the condition of the sinner 
you know, uh, you say, well, you're a, a pessimist. No, I'm a realist. And the real reality of the matter is that the sinner is half dead. He may be physically alive, but spiritually he's dead in trespasses and in sins. We saw how that Samaritan pictured the Son of God because he came along and he noticed him, he saw him, he went to him where he was, he bound up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine, which is a picture of the uh, twofold work of the Holy Ghost. We saw how that he picked him up, took him to the inn, which is a picture of God's house, and uh, provided a place for him, people to take care of him, a church family to love him, and to see to him and made a promise that Samaritan did that one day he was coming back and whatever that inn did, uh, to provide for that man above and beyond and out of their own selves, the Samaritan said, hey, I'm going to repay it for you. We saw how that it was a picture of the Son of God. But tonight I want us to take a little different approach. And I want us to see not the Samaritan Savior tonight, but I want us to see the Samaritan Saint. Let's read together beginning at verse 25. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, he, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. And he said, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time you've afforded us. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray for the unction and power of the Holy Ghost this evening. Lord, I confess and recognize that I am absolutely nothing. I'm incapable. Lord, and though uh, I may try with swelling words uh, to speak to hearts, I know that it's only through the work of the Holy Ghost that anything can be accomplished. So we just ask that He would have liberty this evening, that You'd open our hearts and our ears. Lord, that You'd be able to, co to accomplish much for Your glory and honor this evening. You know what each heart's need is. We ask all this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Now this evening, I want us to take what I consider to be a more classical understanding of this passage. Uh, the Bible teaches us that what the moral or theme or ideal behind this parable is, is the notion of the burden of neighborhood. The burden of neighborhood. The burden of compassion. Who is my responsibility? And this passage answers the who, the when, the why, uh, the, or the who, the when, the what, and the where of compassion. 
This is the thrust of what's being discussed here. This uh, lawyer looks at the Lord uh, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord says, well, if you want to inherit eternal life or attain to eternal life, then, uh, then you would have to, if you're going to do it through your own good works, you would have to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so on and so forth. And uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer looks at him and he says, well, he says, who exactly is my neighbor? Who do I have a responsibility to reach and influence? And it's fascinating that when you go into this passage, you have the question, who is my neighbor? And as you exit this passage down in verse number 36, Christ asks the question, who have you been a neighbor to? You know, that's really the question. We're waiting around for everybody. uh, We're waiting for the lost people to flock into us and beg us how to be saved. God's waiting on you and me to go out and show them the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're waiting for them to get themselves right and dressed up and cleaned up and then come for religion. And that's all, by the way, that it is if they get themselves cleaned up. It's nothing but just vanity and dead religion. But biblical Christianity teaches that the burden of responsibility is placed upon you and I to go out and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we read this passage, I just want to note a few things. I'm going to try to preach this evening. Uh, Brother Brandon looked at me. He said, I'm praying for you that the Lord will give you a ten-minute message with the power of an hour-long message. I looked at him. I said, yeah, and the length of an hour-long message. And his eyes crossed. So we'll see what the Lord does this evening. I want you to notice this evening, before we talk about the Samaritan at all, I want you to notice the superficial religion of the world that surrounded this man. Uh, We spent much time talking this morning about this sojourner, and so I'm not going to spend much time tonight. But suffice it to say that he pictures the sinner in need of Calvary. And as he lays here in this ditch, and he's getting ready to perish, he's half dead, the Bible says in verse number 31, And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, this is a picture of the best that the world uh, without Christ can offer to the sinner. I want you to notice, first off, that they found him. Uh, Do you know that this world is not blind to its problems? Now, I understand that they don't see the answer. But this world understands that there is something inherently and intrinsically wrong with it. I mean, we live in a world that's full of all sorts of remedies and cures and solutions to the problems that it has. Whether it be found on a couch or in a bottle, whether it be found in a booklet, uh, whether it be found in a program, uh, this world is trying to fix itself and trying to heal itself. This world sees that there is a deficit and they see that there is a semblance of depravity in some way, shape, fashion, or form. And these religious folks, as they walked by, they saw, they noticed, they knew there was a problem. And you know what their response was? I talked about this this morning, but it fascinates me that the same word is used for both the priest, the Levite, and for the Samaritan. Look what it says. The Bible says, when he saw him. When he saw him, verse 32 says, uh, came and looked on him. 
This is the same language that's used when the Bible speaks of Christ looking on people and being moved with compassion. It's the same language uh, that's used down in verse number 33 when it says that the Samaritan came where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Can I say that they not only found him, but they felt sorry for him. They genuinely felt for this man. And by the way, that's as far as uh, this world's religion can go. It can feel bad for you. It can feel sorry for you. But at the end of the day, it has no remedy for the sin problem of mankind. And you can look all around Hollywood and all around great financial institutions and you find a sense of guilt for their good fortune and a sense of empathy or sympathy at least uh, for those that are less fortunate. And there's all sorts of charity giving and all sorts of uh, activities and humanitarian efforts that go on. Do you know why? Because uh, suffering is familiar to the human experience and it's uh, easy when you see someone in a bad shape and in a bad way, it's easy to feel bad for This world sees what sin does to the heart and life of sinners, and there is a semblance of guilt. That's why there's rehab centers around. Isn't that right? That's why there's rehab centers around. That's why there's all sorts of programs and uh, activities that people that are addicted uh, to all these various uh, substances can go to because this world feels bad and they're trying to atone in some way. But notice what they did. Look down at verse number 32. The Bible says, and passed by on the other side. They found him and they felt sorry for him, but at the end of the day, what did they do? They forsook him. Do you know why they forsook him? Now, you don't have to believe this, but I do. I don't believe they forsook him because they didn't care. I believe they forsook him because they didn't have the wherewithal to help him. You don't have to believe that, but I believe that. I believe the reason this Samaritan helped him is because he could help him. And I believe that the reason you might say, well, they could have got him up, they could have took him on, and there's a thousand reasons. By the way, it's a parable. Uh, so none of those reasons would be absolutely true or absolutely false. But there's things we could speculate about. We could speculate there wasn't enough room on their donkey. We could speculate they didn't know where the inn was. We could speculate a thousand different reasons. But at the end of the day, religion could not help this man that was in the ditch on the side of the road. Do you know at the end of the day that religion, you say, well, what is religion? Well, there's two definitions. There's uh, pure religion and undefiled, as the Bible calls it, which is to care for the uh, fatherless and for the widows and to keep yourself unspotted from this world. But then there's the religion uh, that the Bible talks about every other time that the word religion is mentioned in the Bible, and it's always in a negative connotation. Uh, Religion is man's reach uh, for God. Christianity is God's reach for man. Religion is man's attempt to uh, satisfy God's law. Christianity is God's expression that His law has been satisfied through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Religion is self-reformation. Bible Christianity is self-crucifixion. That's the difference betwixt the two. And at the end of the day, all the religion in the world could not solve or fix this man's problem. He needed something different. This Samaritan comes by, and we know the story, most of us do. If you're here this morning, you definitely know it. Uh, We know the story of how he bound up his wounds and took care of him. But I want us to look at a few qualities because we're commanded to do so. The Bible tells us in verse number 37 that we're to go and do thou likewise. And if we're going to do that, I believe we need to examine this and understand it. 
What are some qualities about this Samaritan that we can adopt? Notice, uh, first off, look at verse 33. The Bible says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, uh, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. I want you to notice, first off, that he was sensitive in his travels. He saw this man. He noticed this man. I'm fascinated that it says in verse number 31. And by the way, do you know that the book of Luke is a very... Uh, detail-oriented book. Now, every book in the Word of God is perfect down to the detail. Don't misunderstand me. But Luke was a physician. And Luke, whenever God uh, inspired him to pin down the gospel that bears his name, you'll find that through Luke's personality, there's a lot of uh, medical detail that is written down. He wrote everything in a specific way. And uh, notice what it says in verse number 31 when it talks about the priest. It says that he by chance came that way. Now, is anything by chance? We know nothing is. We have a sovereign and providential God. We know nothing happens by accident. So why do you reckon that the Bible records that he came by chance? I believe it records that he came by chance because in this priest's mind, he came by chance. He didn't come by chance, but that was the way he saw it. But that's not what's spoken of about the Samaritan. Now, you hang with me because I know that you're thinking, boy, we're deep in the fog right now, but you hang with me and we'll get into the clear skies here in a second. I want to say that if you're going to be a Samaritan kind of Christian, if you're going to be a useful Christian, you're going to have to start seeing your life as being divinely ordained as opposed to random chance. You're going to have to start seeing uh, the times that you meet people as providential appointments instead of happenstance. Part of the reason we don't reach people is because we don't see ourselves as being led and guided by the hand of God and placed in a pathway with people. We just treat it like, oh, well, we just stumbled into them. Well, no, God's a better God than that. You didn't just stumble into them. God led you to them and led them to you. Uh, you ever wonder why it is that God placed the co-workers around you? He placed around you. He did that so that you could be an influence and so that you could reach them. Uh, The friends that you've got, uh, you may be like me and not have none, but the friends you've got, if you've got them, uh, God gave you those so that you can influence. You might say, well, preacher, all my friends are saved. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, By the way, the influence we have with people don't end when they get saved. It begins when they get saved. You understand? You can still be reaching. And really, at the end of the day, what the Samaritan pictures for us is discipleship between a believer and a new convert. He saw this as an opportunity. Uh, you know, you ought to see everybody that you meet in life as an opportunity to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about some kind of false and fake friendship. I'm talking about genuinely befriending them, loving them, caring about them. That's what this man did. When he saw him, he didn't look at it as an accident. He looked at it as a responsibility. We see that he was sensitive. Notice number two. He was shameless. You'd think most of us, the way we act, we're already shameless. Amen? But he was shameless. We talked this morning about the hatred and enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews considered them to be half-breeds, just dogs. I mean, not worth the bullet it takes to shoot them. That kind of animosity and that kind of hatred. You know that Samaritan, it would have been easy for him to say, well, I ain't going to go help him. Come on now. I'm not going to go help him. He wouldn't want my help if he was in his right mind. I ain't going to go help him. 
It would have been easy for him to say, you know what he'd think of me? If he had a mind enough to think anything about me, I'm not going to go help him. Or it might have been easy for him to look at it and say, I'm not going to go help him. Do you know that he wouldn't even listen to me? Let me tell you something. When a sinner realizes where he's headed, he don't care what color you are. He don't care what your name is. He don't care where you've been. He doesn't care what your tax bracket is. When a sinner realizes that he's on the way to hell, he's looking for somebody to show him the way out. This man wasn't getting picky while he was laying in the ditch. But you know that Samaritan could have just walked on by and he'd listened to his flesh. And I'll tell you, friend, we better not have crucified flesh before we're going to do anything for Jesus Christ. Because we sure ain't going to do it until we do. As long as we're letting the flesh rule in our life, we're never going to do a thing for Jesus Christ. This Samaritan had to crucify his flesh. He had to look at himself and say, you know, it may not matter what I think about this man. He needs, he needs Jesus Christ. Yes. It may not matter. Uh, it doesn't need to matter what I think of him. He needs these wounds bound up. He needs some oil. He needs some wine. He needs some help. It doesn't matter what I think about him. It doesn't matter if we wouldn't get along in other circumstances. It doesn't matter. Hey, it doesn't matter if he might think I'm a weirdo for talking to him about Jesus Christ. He needs him. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Until we uh, begin to evangelize in our daily walks, we're... We're, only, we're limiting what God can do in our in our lives. Yes. Until we start to see everyone as an opportunity, we're limiting what God's doing in our lives and through us. We see that He was sensitive. We see that He was shameless. But I want you to notice, I, I always like this. Uh, look down a little bit further. The Bible says in verse number 34, uh, that all this speaks to my heart, and went to Him and bound up His wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set Him on His own beast brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, please understand the language I use when I say this. Uh, because no man has the ability to save anybody else. God must save the soul. Uh, but in a sense, could I say to you that not only was he sensitive and shameless, but he was saving. He was in the business of trying to bind up this man's wounds and get him some help. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to do a lot of things that ain't going to make a lick of difference in eternity. And we need to be about the business of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Yeah. I say, I, I, I encourage you to invite people to church, and, and if you can't get them to church, and, and I, you know, I love to see new people, and, and of course I love it whenever uh, somebody walks an aisle and gets saved. But can I say that you can get them through the doors of Walridge Baptist Church, but that won't keep them out of the gates of hell necessarily. Right. Uh, you can get them to join the church. That don't necessarily mean that they're saved. I think part of the most disturbing thought is the fact that a lot of our churches have a lot of unsaved people in them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't you think that's true? Yeah. Why do you think it's a war zone half the time in a lot of churches? It's because you've got the spiritual and the natural clashing and colliding. Uh, there's a lot of things we can do, and it, it would have been interesting. You notice that the Bible does not say, and stick with me now, the Bible does not say that he cleaned this man up. The Bible says he bound him up. The Bible does not say. Now we assume that later on when he got into the inn, I'm sure that he did. But it does not say that the first thing he did was clean him up. The Bible says the first thing he did was bind him up. Uh, do you know that people can go and they can die and split hell wide open and have perfect dress standards? Yeah. They can die and split hell wide open and have a sharp haircut and King James Bible under their arm. Those things don't make them safe. 
Well, you need to understand, I'm not against teaching those things. You know me well enough to know that. But what I'm saying is this. We need to understand what business we're really to be about. And that's winning people to Jesus Christ. That's the work that God set us to. The purpose for our being here is to be found under His praise, honor, and glory. But the work that He has set us to be doing uh, is the reaching of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the helping to get them uh, plugged in at a local independent Baptist church and to be disciples that they can grow in grace and spirit. That's what God's called us to be doing. And we see that this man was set about this work and this business. He didn't come and say, I'll put you in a better ditch. He didn't come and say, I'll clean you up. He came and he said, what's your problem? Well, my problem is I'm wounded, I'm broken, I'm bankrupt. So he bound him up and poured in the oil and he poured in the wine and he got him out of the ditch that he was in. That's the business we need to be about. I want you to notice, uh, third, fourth, fifth, it don't matter. I want you to notice that he was also sheltering. He didn't leave him where he was. I think one of the greatest, the greatest tragedies in churches today is evangelism without any effort to discipleship. It's the equivalent of spiritual negligent homicide. We win people to Jesus Christ. We make no effort to get them plugged into a church somewhere. Now, there's a lot of good churches in this town. Not everybody will say that, but I will say that. There's a lot of good churches in this town. Well, we're getting God's will for everybody. Uh, you know, I mean, I hope it is, but I don't believe it is. Uh, but let me say this. Everybody needs church family and church home. I talked about that this morning. Everybody needs church family. Everybody needs church home. God has ordained the local church, and the local church is a priority. Amen. Uh, that is the means through which God is uh, uh, discipling and growing believers and providing them the structure that they need in their daily walk and the local church is important. And what did this man do? He got this man, sent him on his own uh, beast and carried him and took him to the inn. A place of shelter where he could get the help that he needs. And by the way, this is what I want you to get. The discipleship didn't end when he wanted it. The discipleship didn't end when he bound him up and cleaned his wounds. It just began there. His responsibility was to get him somewhere he could get help. And can I say that we need to have, we need to completely readjust our notion of what discipleship is. We have relegated discipleship to merely being, oh, well, you buy a booklet or you stick them on the Sunday school class, you read a few things to them, you teach them about believers' baptism, then you ship them off down the road. That's not biblical discipleship. Christ chose twelve disciples. One of them he knew was a devil. Uh, but he spent three and a half years with them, day and night. You know what? Of the eleven that weren't devils, uh, either Scripture or secular history attests to us that every single one of them did something great for Jesus Christ. It took a little bit more than a couple of hours on Sunday. It took a little bit more than a couple of classes. It took some, and listen to this statement, some witness. Had to spend time with them. Notice when he brought this man to the shelter, he stayed with him for a little bit, didn't he? He stayed with him for a little bit. One of my greatest fears is that a lot of people never get plugged in in church because the person that invited them to church isn't faithful enough to themselves. Come a time or two and that person's not there and they say, well, just forget it. Just forget it. Must not be real. Must not be genuine. I'll tell you something, if your religion ain't good enough to get you to the house of God, it ain't worth much. 
You may have some spiritual children. You may not uh, lead them to the Lord, but you help them to get in church and they're getting discouraged. You'd be amazed what a phone call would do. Just called up and said, Hey, listen, I've noticed you're struggling and slipping and I'm praying for you. And I'm thinking about you. If I need encouragement or help to you, I want you to let me know how to. Really, it's funny. It's what people call pastoring, Brother Ralph. It's really just discipleship on a larger scale. What I do as a pastor, if I make a phone call and encourage someone, or somebody visits our church, and I go and visit them and try to encourage them, or if I try to reach out to someone, befriend someone, get them in church, really that's just what every believer ought to be doing. Just trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and show them through the love and compassion of God what it means to be a Christian and what Christ can do for them. We find that this parable or story, or however you'd like to describe it, ends with an inversion of thought. It begins with, who is my neighbor? Who do I have a responsibility to? When do I have this responsibility? And what is that responsibility? By the time you exit these verses, Christ says, who have you been a neighbor to? I wonder here tonight, how many of us have been a neighbor to someone lately? It may be that you've tried and somebody's discouraged you or shut you down from being able to. That's okay. You keep on trying. Uh, God's never had anybody that wanted to work in his field that he didn't have a place for. And maybe tonight you're saying, well, preacher, I've never done these things. I want to know how to go about it. Well, sure you do. Sure you do. You know how to be a friend to someone. You know how to tell people what Christ did for you. You know how to encourage them to be in the house of God or how to share the gospel with them. Everybody does. Just talk about what Christ did for you and how you got saved. The question is this. Are you willing to be a neighbor to someone? I'm not going to require or ask. I couldn't require anyway. I can't, you can't make nobody do nothing. I learned that. But I was going to ask, but I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. And I'm not going to ask you to make a commitment uh, that would bind you in, in some kind of way in responsibility to the Lord. But let me tell you what I would recommend, what I'd suggest to you. I'd encourage you tonight, if God laid someone on your heart, as you began to hear this message, you began to think about someone that God's placed in your pathway, that you've been thinking about encouraging to come to church or sharing the gospel with or even just having a word of prayer with I'd encourage you tonight to make a commitment to the Lord if you feel liberty to do so, that by His grace and with His help, you're going to try to be a neighbor to that person. And if you could not think of anyone, I'd encourage you tonight to pray and ask the Lord. Say, Lord, would you give me someone in my pathway that I can try to do and to be that for? You know, if God's people would get down to business in the area of evangelism and discipleship, we could see God do some phenomenal things. We're sitting around waiting, waiting for this man to crawl out of the ditch, clean himself up, and carry himself to the end. You know, I don't know this, so this is speculation. You take it for what it's worth, a million or a worthless, or I've got one, you know. But why do you reckon this Samaritan knew where the end was? Could it be that he had traveled that road time and time again? 
could have been whichever way he was headed on that road, he was headed to that end in the first place. And so he had a place where he could take it to. Why don't you look for that person in your life and say, Lord, help me to encourage them to come and be in the house of God if they know the Lord as their Savior. And if not, why don't you tell them and say, Hey, I hear you're going through a rough time. Could I have my church family pray for you? We'll be discreet. We won't mention your name, but could we pray for you? Something to reach you. I, I believe if you'll do that, I believe we'll do some great things. Don't you? Their heads bowed with their eyes closed as a musician slips to the piano.